China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by John Yasuda, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. Today we'll be discussing John's research on China's stock markets. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. So you're working on a book project now of which we're getting some midstream thoughts and some early peeks into your research. And you shared uh, very helpfully some of the material that may or may not go into the the ultimate book, but it really just provided me for the very first time a a really comparative understanding of where China's uh, stock market sits compared to other Asian stock markets. But there was also a lot of fascinating material just about how China's investment environment operates, which which I, I learned a great deal from. And I wanted to start out with one of my first top line observations or questions, really, which is, this is a really interesting line of work that I haven't seen a whole lot on. So I wanted to ask you first an, an intellectual biography, if you wouldn't mind telling us, how did you get interested in this? What brought you to this point in terms of your own intellectual development? And then I finally, what are the big outstanding questions that that still drive you in this line of research? I sort of bumbled into this, stumbled into this rather, because I'm more of a regulation and governance person, which is basically the broccoli of political science, how rules and norms sort of govern how markets are supposed to operate. And I used to do this really in sort of social regulation, so food safety, environmental politics, And I've deliberately run away from anything to do with finance because I grew up in Hong Kong. My family has always been in finance and I had a short stint as an investment banker at one point in my life that I'd rather not talk about. So when it came to my academic work, I had always steered clear. But increasingly, I was sort of drawn back into the discussion about the financial markets really on account of going through my father's own experience investing in Hong Kong and the China markets and as a financier. And as I was mining through his own sort of recollections, I realized that there was a great deal to be said about finance, the state and development that I wanted to sort of really analyze and think through. There's a particular story that really struck me in terms of how states sort of have to create a narrative or fictions about the market and how things run that really captured my imagination. And it was this interesting story about the bank that my dad's firm used to run in Hong Kong. And uh, you'll remember during the Asian financial crisis, things were a little dicey. And the Hong Kong government was a little bit nervous about uh, the capitalization of uh, the local banks. And so... At one point, outside the main Wan Chai branch, there were uh, hundreds of people gathering outside the branch. My father gets a call from the president who says, look, you know, there are a bunch of people. We're nervous about a bank run. We have enough money, but we're nervous about the people. You need to authorize me to do this thing. And my dad goes, "Okay, well, what do you want to do? He said, all right, well, I'm going to instruct the tellers of the bank to take out thousand dollar denominated Hong Kong dollar bills and stack them on the windows of the bank. And my dad was just like, okay, do it. And so 
they didn't open the bank, but they lifted up the shutters and the bank tellers said, we have your money. And they started stacking Hong Kong dollar bills right up at the window. And one by one, these panic depositors began to walk away. And that story has always struck me as if it wasn't for this sort of scheme, this illusion of stability and control that was presented, there would have been a run on the bank. And it makes me think about all the interventions that the Chinese government has done in the stock market, right? Its own version of, well, let's put and stack money in front of the teller's windows to assuage nervous investors. And the power that the government, through its regulators, can shape the, the development of a financial market. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. That's actually a good point of, of departure here. Before we dive into some of the specifics of your work, I wanted to ask you at just a 35,000-foot level, I had assumed, and I think indeed this was one of the main motivations, early motivations of your work, is that as you started to look at China's financial markets and its stock markets, you would find something very distinct from other Asian equity markets and, and, and the investment environment. And I don't want to give the plot away, but it sounds like you found something quite different and, and more similar. Can you just give us a quick overview of that? Where does that thesis stand now that you've been investigating how different or similar China's domestic stock markets and investment environment are from other Asian countries? That's right. I had gone into this project sort of trying to, you know, for most of us who've read a good deal about sort of China's stock markets, it's sort of this weird creature, right? Really used to deal with corporatization efforts for state-owned enterprises in the 90s. It is, you know, famous for a great deal of intervention. Of course, you have a very restricted capital account. And so you immediately go into thinking about the equities market in China as this is a strange little place, right? But as I started speaking to a number of the regulators in China, they would basically point me not to their own market, but say, nope, we actually learned that from Taiwan. The Taiwan Stock Exchange had QFI regulations regarding qualified foreign institutional investors. They had that scheme before we did. And I was like, well, you know, everybody talks about the trading bans and how certain stocks aren't allowed to move beyond sort of, at that point, it was 5 to 7%. Now it's 10%. But a uh, particular stock couldn't trade above those levels. And they said, no, we got that from Taiwan. They've been doing that since the 1980s. And so then I rush over to Taiwan and I begin to say, well, you know, um, a lot of the regulators and the architects of the Chinese stock exchange say that they've kind of modified and picked up and adapted sort of rules that you have here. And they said, oh, well, we picked it up from the Japanese. And so then I run over to Tokyo and they sort of said, well, yeah, we adopted the Securities and Exchange Act from the U.S., but we tinkered with it quite a bit and uh, made it work for our own system. And you can talk to the Koreans because they've been uh, doing the same thing. And so I go over to Korea and you see the same sort of government control over the market. And when I begin to talk about certain issues that happen in China, the regulators there don't say, 
oh, that's that's so inappropriate, or why would they do that? They're not flummoxed at all. They they actually go, oh, I see, I see, I see. We do it a little differently, but I see where they're coming from. And that's when I realized that China's regulatory story, it, as far as its equities markets are concerned, is a regional story. It's about the diffusion of ideas about the appropriate role of finance that has been happening in the region for the last 30, 40 years or so. And China's a relative newcomer to that, right? And so at one point, it did think about looking towards New York and London as all sort of emerging markets have the aspirations to be regional financial centers do. But they quickly saw that there was an incongruence and incompatibility with their own system and how regulators in sort of the European and American markets approach uh, the stock exchange. And so as a result, China isn't that strange. It's more extreme on a sort of spectrum of more interventionist, more government control. But it's definitely on that spectrum. It's not sort of this sui generis case. Which, again, is just so interesting to me because maybe I had confused being further along a spectrum of state intervention as actually being a paradigm or, or just even a different category. But but it sounds like, um, you know, from your work, I'm, I'm now convinced there's just much more continuities or similarities between many of these Asian equity markets. I do want to talk about some of the maybe not distinguishing characteristics, but but characteristics that put China further on, on the spectrum uh, than others. But I want to begin with a, a statistic, which really I thought was really interesting especially given, again, some of the, the priors I brought to this to, before reading your work. One of them is um, I knew there was a high degree of retail investor behavior in China's market. But, you know, you say it's somewhere you know, 80 to 85 percent of market turnover is by you know, retail investors. And so I, my first question really is, or first substantive question is, I'm surprised that there's that high of a level of retail investment, especially given the Communist Party's fixation on stability. I would have imagined that they would have developed or urged the development of large institutional investors. Indeed, I can see this China model, a room for large state-owned institutional investors to, to play a stabilizing role in the market. Why has that not come to fruition? And is this a high degree of, of retail investment behavior by design or just the, the result of sort of spontaneous dynamics in the market? This is the question that the regulators, the stock exchange officials, and the market practitioners are trying to deal with. They love the liquidity that retail investors bring to the market. They do not like the fact that they are basically at the forefront of the major boom and bust cycles in the, uh, in the equities market. And when I would speak to the regulators and the stock exchange officials about their retail investor problem, right? They basically said, well, look, uh, we don't want to get rid of them. We're a stock market within the context of a socialist market economy. So these retail investors have a right to participate. And that's always been our position. We don't want to get rid of the retail investors. We just want more institutional investors. Uh, and that's the official party line. But again, this retail investor frenzy in the stock market is driven by financial repression. When 
as a household, your primary avenue to accumulate wealth is basically real estate. Your bank deposits don't generate anything for you on the order of sort of acceptable returns. So you stick it in the one vehicle that you can. That is, if you have capital and you can't get it out of the country, and most people try to get it out of the country, you go into the stock market. Right. And so it is this one sort of avenue and channel for people to try to accumulate wealth. The problem is, is that you have an irrational investor base, right? This notion of the rational investor that is pricing risk, that is making long-term investment decisions, reading all the corporate disclosures is just not what happens there. So you have these folks that are chasing volatility and the regulators know this. And so the way that they try to deal with this problem, of course, is suppressing volatility through trading bans or through basically shoring up the market during market downturns because they know that the retail investors will protest. They've always seen it as a potential bit of social unrest. This is even as far back as just after the Shenzhen Stock Exchange was set up in 1991. There were a bunch of retail investors that during an IPO to get access to one of these listings that was happening. It was all the rage, right, in the 90s. What's the stock market? What's an IPO, right? And so you had a bunch of folks that thought that the lottery system was uh, rigged, that they weren't getting their portion of these new IPOs that were coming out. And the entire city protested, right? And regulators in Shenzhen were calling the head of the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong being like, what do we do? What do, you know, you didn't tell us that this could happen. And from that point on, as one senior advisor to the CSRC, he jokingly said to me, he's like, you know, retail investors don't have much recourse either to the courts or to mediation. And of course, not the ballot box in terms of their displeasure with corporate malfeasance or regulatory overreach but they're loud and they have the what he called the power of voice the their huayuquan right and they and they use it and the government typically listens to two groups of people exercising their voice soccer fans and stock market punters and there is just this general fear of so how do you get this to happen and so uh, how do you sort of get a more maturing investor base and of course so they have been encouraging the development of institutional investors the problem is is that they don't like their institutional investors either because the institutional investors have been sort of involved in a whole host of big scandals and they haven't really been delivering on returns after the 2015 stock market crash, a bunch of the major securities players and the securities houses in China came under severe reprimand from the CSRC. Can I just, John, I'm going to just interject to, for listeners, the CSRC is the China Securities Regulatory Commission. So the CSRC did not like the way that these uh, securities houses were behaving. And so there's this general sense of this wild, wild west in the stock market, also driven by the retail investor problem. It's this interesting interconnection between the two. I, I just wanted to linger on this for a second. In the run-up to the 2015 equity market bust, 
one of the criticisms had been that the Chinese government was essentially talking up the market to retail investors and was not just implying, but was quite explicit about this being a safe bet. Have they learned a lesson from 2015? And are they attempting to educate retail investors that by chasing volatility, you have to recognize that you're, you're potentially chasing a downside, not just an upside? I think there's a constant sort of back and forth within the sort of political and regulatory structure. I think regulators, they're much more risk averse, right? I think within the political establishment and among the leadership, they sort of always have it both ways, right? There's this famous sort of, if you take the Victor Xi model of sort of uh, factions and finance, there's always folks that sort of want to amp up financial activity because it it looks good, right? You want easy money because that gets channeled into investment. You want people to run up the stock market because it looks good. And so there's this performative aspect to it. Regulators are always a little bit more nervous, but 2015 was, I think, quite a shocking moment for everyone because they didn't expect this kind of a downturn to really happen. The one concern that a lot of the regulators had, of course, was people aren't really learning about how to sort of understand risk and sort of deal with it. So you see this kind of constant cycle happening all the time where it's like, get excited about the market. Like, you know, this is a good place to put your money and, but then be careful. But no one listens to that, right? Because everybody is sort of trying to follow what the potential policy is and trying to make a little bit of money, right? The one of the big guy at one of the uh, major uh, securities firms in China said that, you know, in Chinese, uh, they have this saying, so it's like once you grasp it, it dies. Once you let it go, it turns to chaos. Speaking to the windows of opportunity for getting a return. And that's how the market, sort of these retail investors respond. I wanted to ask about the level of, of I mean, we're talking about the, the role of the regulatory authorities like CSRC. I wanted to ask uh, for the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges, you, you'd written in, in um, that these are delegated regulatory authorities under the CSRC, which means that they don't have true independence. I wanted to ask, what does the political involvement or regulatory involvement look like such that they don't have that independence? Where do we see politics and markets mixing at these regulatory bodies? We just saw quite recently and publicly that that Hong Kong said it wasn't going to go forward with the, the anti-PO, of course, after it got nixed in, in the mainland. Can you just walk us through where, where politics intervenes here for, for these equity markets, these exchanges? That's a great question. And one of the problems sort of giving you a definitive answer on it is because uh, we're in the midst of the rollout of the new 2020 securities law reform. So everything is sort of in flux at the moment. Prior to the reforms, basically the CSRC made all decisions about listing through its approval process. A famously sort of onerous, difficult registration and approval process that basically involved a pretty deep look into corporate financials, uh, looking at your business plan, macroeconomic considerations, and more or less when they made a decision that a company was should be able to list, the exchange would list it. 
there was no question as to that would happen. And so as regulators would sort of explain, they said, look, we make the decision and they list it. Of course, so the CSRC is part and parcel of the massive financial sort of state. And there are different prerogatives that come up from time to time. The government didn't want real estate companies from listing. They didn't want them listing for quite some time. And so Wanda had sort of been interested in listing. There's no way that it was going to get approved because they said, look, we have to cool down the real estate market. It didn't matter if Wanda as a company was great or not. It just wasn't going to happen. But also you see that the sort of listing process moves a lot faster uh, for companies that are aligned with major government initiatives. So in 2012, there's a big push for Western provinces to sort of jumpstart their development. And so as a result, you see all these IPOs of companies from Western provinces jump to the front of the queue and get their listings as part of this recent sort of drive to eliminate poverty in China, if there was a county uh, that was a nationally des designated impoverished county, um, you know, if they had a company that wanted to be listed, that would jump to the front of the queue. And if there were problems with the company after listing, they wouldn't be pushed to delist. The, the regulator would sort of help them out to prevent sort of what they perceive to be, you know, damage to their local economy. And so politics and policy is just how the exchange, the exchange is part and parcel of this. Building on that, Meg Rithmeyer, who was recently on the podcast, she co-authored a paper, I think we were talking about before we recorded that you'd read as well with Chun Hao on this kind of investor state model where you're seeing especially after 2015, which I'm just now realizing how 2015 in terms of impact on the domestic financial regulatory environment and the role of the state was pretty profound in terms of the enduring legacies of both the diagnosis of what went wrong and also the response by the Chinese government that we're still in many ways dealing with that, that world which, which emerged out of 2015. But she writes in her paper on the investor state, which on how, on how, you saw the national team bailout that occurred, and that since that moment, we've seen this pretty spectacular rise of state investment companies and, and entities becoming shareholder in an extraordinary number of listed companies. And so I'm just curious from your angle where you're looking at Chinese domestic equity markets, where does that trend show up? And do you see from your own analysis any import from that phenomenon. One of the things I struggle to, to really comprehend is, in many cases, these state asset and state investment companies are taking you know, minuscule shares in companies. So I just wonder, does, does that matter? And if it does, where does that matter? Ultimately, there's this question of who does the stock market exist for? And is it really about the investing public or is it really about the state? And increasingly, one has to come to the conclusion that the stock market is in service of the state. There's no doubt about it. There's increasing sort of interest of the state trying to acquire stakes in privately held companies. This is the position that like Julian Gruen takes, which I agree with, is that ultimately it's an extension of control, right? And 
That has always been the case, even as far as sort of corporatization efforts in the 90s was concerned, right? You had interesting share categories that were created that between the state share, the legal person share, and then these sort of openly circulated shares. And the issue there was is that only a tiny proportion of shares were actually circulated in the market. They've gradually sort of dealt with the legal person share, so those are circulating now. But the state has always been kind of a part uh, of this story. And so the part that's actually driven by the market turnover and retail investors, it's not really compromising ownership. And famously, you look at sort of the returns for retail investors in, or just investors in general in state-owned enterprises they're not very good. They're really way below the norm. And so as a result, there's sort of this general feeling of, well, how is this market really going to develop, right? When the state really is the primary game in town. That's a really interesting and and provocative point that I I hadn't framed it that way of, of of this stock market existing for the state. I didn't know you, you grew up in Hong Kong. So maybe end with a Hong Kong question, which is, what is the future of Hong Kong as a major financial hub? As we just mentioned, the aborted, at least for now, the temporarily delayed listing of Ant Financial in Hong Kong, which was set to be this big, huge marker of the prominence of Chinese equity markets. But in the shadow of the national security law and what is undoubtedly the one-way ratchet of Beijing's control over, over the city, What's your prognosis on the long-term health of, of Hong Kong as a major financial city? So this has been a big question for not only the Hong Kong sort of Securities and Futures Commission, but also global financial players. I had just actually done an interview with the Hong Kong Economic Journal, who um, they were really interested in whether, especially after the national security law, whether Japan would try to basically siphon off a lot of the international sort of investment houses, the investment professionals from Hong Kong to Tokyo, because Abe apparently made a number of comments saying that they would invite sort of the Hong Kong financial community over to Tokyo. To which I said, look, do you think Tokyo is going to be the primary gateway for Chinese companies to list. Like, that is not going to happen. Hong Kong is always going to remain this way until China sort of figures out what it wants to do with this capital account. Because they, Hong Kong has always been able to be used as this a way for China to have its cake and eat it too, right? It, you can keep your capital markets closed off, but let your best companies get access to global capital pools through this nice little entrepot off your coast, right? Hong Kong as an offshore market has served mainland China's capital markets very well in that respect. And that's not going to change uh, anytime soon. When I speak to the folks in Beijing about this and sort of relay the concerns of the Hong Kong financiers, they laugh and they say, look, you know, we understand why Hong Kong is getting a little nervous, right? Because basically the Hong Kong stock market story is the China SOE white labeling 
story, right, of getting repackaged and listing in Hong Kong. That, that's the story of the Hong Kong stock market. And so naturally, when you have all these sort of initiatives to really get Chinese companies to list domestically, it makes them quite nervous. But the reality is, is that that's not going to, like, there will be what they, what the folks in Beijing were saying, there's definitely going to be a redistribution of IPOs. So Hong Kong isn't going to, you know, get all of them. But I mean, we've seen time and time again, that ultimately Hong Kong is still the preferred venue. And it, and especially given sort of tensions with the United States right now, Hong Kong is going to be, you know, is probably going to do pretty well. And there, uh, from what the regulators in Hong Kong were saying, their IPO queue looks good. So they're learning and they're they're sort of adapting to this uh, evolving situation. It's not going to be like the 90s or the early 2000s, that's for sure. Well, John, I want to thank you uh, very much. Really enjoyed the conversation. I am looking forward to the book whenever whenever it's completed and whenever it comes out. But I really do appreciate you sharing some of your work as it's uh, as it's midstream. I've enjoyed talking to you about it. I mean, the big question is, where are you going to put your money, Jude? <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 